businesses have to learn how to adapt. So the weak ones will die out, but the ones that are cognizant of the technology wave will begin to adapt with technology and find ways to thrive and survive. Welcome to Surgeon Syndicate. If you're paying attention, you know that you only make money when you work. It might be great money, but it's dependent on you. The information on this podcast will help you solve that. We interview experts and provide analysis into financial freedom through commercial real estate. Why? To help physicians like you thrive. Let's dive in. Well, welcome back to the second half of the show. We have Don Trong back discussing non-residential commercial real estate. Again, our show today is sponsored by Fortress Capital. It's a private equity company that I founded to help physicians build passive income through commercial real estate. Being a physician is a high stress job and building passive income stream is a key to not feeling trapped in that job. All right, back to Tan. So let's talk about, get into the details of some of the real estate things that you've done. How about we start with What's your worst experience or your worst deal you've had in real estate? Oh, worst deal in real estate. So it wouldn't be a commercial deal. I haven't had any nightmares. Or actually, I did. That just happened. But I'll tell that story too. The first one was a single family property that I bought sight unseen. And this was kind of during COVID as well. And the owner sold it to me like, hey, man, I can't find the key at the closing. Here's 300 bucks to get the keys redone. I'm like, oh, sweet. That's fine. No worries. And after the fact, realized that tenants were kind of dodging us. Like we couldn't get communication with them. We couldn't get rents from them. Nothing. Went to their unit. Nothing. Right. And so we filed for eviction. And during this time, there was an eviction moratorium. So long story short, it kind of lengthened out to another few months, right? So at the point where we we're actually able to get them out, ordered the sheriff, got some movers in there. And this is my first time actually looking inside the property. I didn't even look entirely inside the property. You could smell this house from the street. I kid you not. Windows were open. Guys were in hazmat suits going in, moving stuff, right? One of the movers came up to me and he goes, dude, you will not believe what is in this house. I'm like, well, I can smell it. If that is anything, it smells like somebody died in there. They got all this garbage out, got two dogs, some cats, gerbils, the whole zoo, right? And I go, what is it? He goes, dude, in the kitchen, there's a 400 pound pig laying in the corner in like six inches of probably its own shit. And I was blown away. I was baffled. I was like, there's no way there's a pig in there. So I didn't have a hazmat suit, so I didn't go in. I think that's a blessing in disguise. So they had to call animal control to come get this pig, right? Name was Wilbur. Shocking. (laughs) And sure shit, 400 pounds. It was huge. Getting it out was a nightmare. It took a whole team of people. It broke two ramps, one coming out, one getting into the van. It was a whole ordeal. but So I was like, man, hopefully I can still make some money off this deal. But at the end of the day, whoever we had cleaned up the whole house, got the feces out. And luckily with all those costs and the acquisition costs, we sold it for break even. So <laughs> that was probably my worst residential deal and a story that I'll never forget. So what's your lesson you would say to avoid that? I think it was really just 
my fault in general. And well, the whole team's fault in terms of my partners and I, because they were kind of pushing me to get this thing under contract to just purchase it because the numbers worked, right? And I kind of overridden my gut feeling. We got to go see this, right? Like what if the whole foundation's messed up, whatever. And essentially we were just too trusting, right? So the lesson is no matter what anybody tells you, trust, but verify. And obviously don't buy a property sight unseen. (laughs) A lot of people have. I did once, I bought a house when we moved and we'd gone and looked for houses and couldn't find a house. And we're just looking for a rental. And then the agent called back and said, Hey, I found this house. It's a great deal. And we bought it sight unseen and got there and there wasn't a pig in it, but it smelt almost as bad. And so, yeah, the sight unseen is a bad thing. Since somebody you trust to look at it, if you can't. It's tough. So on the commercial side, I wouldn't say I've had a bad deal. No pig. No pig. Definitely no pig yet. (laughs) But over the weekend, Sunday, there was someone who, I don't think they were overdosed, but they were on methamphetamines and ran into a pillar, a supporting post on the strip center and crashed into one of our tenants' units. So that's a nightmare got to deal with on the insurance side. So just random stuff like that from an investment perspective, though, I'd say the numbers are still as projected and they're doing just fine. So that's one is the difference for people who are looking to invest as a doc, the difference between investing actively and passively. If you like building the deal and you don't mind getting the pig out of the house or the meth addict car out of the strip center, that's just some of the stuff you deal with. It's not every day, but it is some of the stuff you deal with. But for people who like, I don't want to deal with that that's where there are opportunities to invest with other people and you can just do it passively. And that's a great thing as a doc. You still get a lot of the tax benefits and such from it. Absolutely. I think passive is the way to go because looking from an operator's standpoint, I'm looking through it the lens firsthand, right? And there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of pieces that you have to manage, right? From an accounting perspective to dealing with tenants, to lease ups, to the construction aspect, to dealing with the city right? There's a ton of stuff when it comes to commercial and you have to know what you're doing in order to operate it well. So if you're someone who's great at multitasking or great at project management, the active side might be for you. Personally, I'm more of a fan on the passive side because you're pretty much looking for or interviewing some of the great operators out there through word of mouth, right? Figuring out whether or not they have the integrity that they say they do or the transparency that they say they do and whether or not they can fulfill the business plan that's in relation to a investment. So, so the first piece there is the interview spot, an interview piece, right? From there, it's just pretty much following along the deal and seeing if they're doing what they say they've done. And obviously, as an investor, you're getting a piece of the pie, right? Whether it is 8%, 10%, 5%, whatever. Right. And you're kind of a bystander, but you still get a piece of this deal, right? You're still making the returns that the deal should be projected to make. And on top of that, yeah, I think the tax benefits are phenomenal. And you literally didn't really have to lift a finger. So, huge proponent. I'd rather be, I don't know, in Costa Rica or something (laughs) while passively investing in a deal. Right. Yeah, you made a good point about the talking to the operators. And that's a big difference. It's a shift from 
buying stock. I've never, and maybe I should have, called a company we're buying stock in. Nobody ever says, like, call and talk to the guy running it. But when you're investing in real estate, it is part of what you do. And some of the bigger operators, you're going to talk to their investor relations team. But a lot of time you're going to talk to the guy running the show. And I think it's a great thing to do because you can ask him questions and get to know them. If something hits you wrong, walk away. There's plenty of people to invest with to find people who see the world the same as you do. Absolutely. And that's a big one. If they don't ask you, like, what are your goals as an investor? Why are you here? That's a good play. That's where they should be starting. Because if you're calling and you're like, I'm looking for a regular income, I want to check every month to pay my bills. And it's a land entitlement deal that may turn a great return, but your money goes away for nine to 18 months, and then it comes back bigger, they shouldn't be putting you in that deal. Right. There has to be some alignment of interest, right? Obviously, you want to make sure your operator has some skin in the game as well. And you don't want to get on a bus or a boat that's going in the wrong direction, right? You guys want to have the same destination in order to sail there, right? So whoever the operator is, if they don't have the qualities that you're looking for, the character that you're looking for, that's an automatic red flag, right? And to piggyback off your point, they should be asking you what your goals are because you want to make sure that whoever you're investing with, whatever your project is, it aligns with their goals. Because like you said, it could be a land deal where you're not getting paid for a while. And if this investor wants this, this, and that on a monthly basis, quarterly basis, et cetera, the right operator would say no. But the red flag one would be like, oh yeah, man, write me this check. <laughs> and it's also a cool thing about real estate that's you can find people who see the world similar to you and you develop friendships and relationships to it. It can be more than just buying some shares of Coca-Cola online. That's another cool thing about it. So I want to go back to your strip center. So every time I talk to a doctor about a strip center deal, their eyes, they look like they just saw a tiger jump out of the bush and <laughs> they look terrified. And of course you'll hear, well, wait, what about Amazon and retail's dead? And it's just a scary thing. I think it's easier to buy a house and rent it because at some point we've all rented a house. Like, okay, I'm going to just be on the other side where retail gets scarier. So why do you like strip centers or strip malls, retail centers? What's the appeal there? And what are the things you're looking for? And what do these look like? Oh man, there's a ton of factors why I like retail, but I guess I'll try to make some comparisons with multifamily. I think multifamily is easier to understand for a lot of people. There's a ton of education out there, right? It's simpler, if you will. So let's say you had a tenant, residential tenant, who is literally the perfect tenant, and they've only been with you for a year, right? They are clean. They even painted their unit. If the appliance goes out, they purchase the appliance, right? Let's say the fridge goes out, they ordered a new fridge throughout the old one, right? So literally the perfect golden star tenant, right? Pay the utilities, never calls you, clog toilet, they take care of it, right? Now let's say their lease is ending and you want to renew with them, right? And let's say you signed a five-year lease with this particular tenant because they've done such a great job. I think a lot of the audience would say, yeah, I'd sign them in a heartbeat for five years, right? Yeah. So that is how a retail tenant 
is or a commercial tenant in general, I should say. But I can't say all of them are great, right? So you have different classifications of tenants. You have your mom and pops or you have regional tenants or you have national credit tenants. National credit tenants are probably your safest bet because they're the least likely to break a lease. So that national credit tenant or even sometimes a regional tenant, and in some occasions, even your mom and pop tenants are that particular perfect tenant. They're operating a business. They hold themselves in high regard. They like to keep their place of business clean. They do pretty much everything to their unit, right? And obviously, there are some caveats there with negotiations and whatnot on who's responsible for what. The other thing I like about retail in general is that, like you said, Mike, a lot of people are like, oh, what about Amazon? What about Chewy? What about these big internet companies that are delivering stuff straight to my door, right? And I agree. That is a killer for some retail businesses. But you can't buy company online, company being friends that are around you. You can't buy that aspect online and have a beer with them, right? You can't enjoy a meal with them. So you can't buy that. I mean, you can buy uncooked food or you can buy cooked food delivered to you, right? Just a different atmosphere. You can't buy a haircut online. You can't get your nails done online. So a lot of service-based businesses will stay in business, right? And with businesses, there are cycles, right? Technology is phenomenal, but it does put a damper on things sometimes. So in a sense, businesses have to learn how to adapt. So the weak ones will die out, but the ones that are cognizant of the technology wave will begin to adapt with technology and find ways to thrive and survive in those conditions. So aside from the fact that I don't have to deal with clogged toilets and long-term leases, right? I deal with business owners. It's another partnership that you are involved in. You are responsible for their success. You're helping them kind of figure out ways to elevate their business, right? Just working through some of those puzzles is really enjoying. And it's kind of cool at the end of the day to learn about their business too, right? Because it gives you a good feel in the business world. Like if you love business, like I do, it's what I enjoy the most out of the retail space. So aside from that, I think the numbers are just larger. So some of those things are why I like retail. So what a doc told me last time we were looking at a retail center together and they were like, well, this is really risky. Isn't this risky? And so there's a perception that, well, everybody needs a place to live. That's what the multifamily folks say. But there are ways to de-risk that that retail center can actually be less risky than an apartment building, like a value add. So just walk us through a little bit like, okay, so finding a strip center that's 70% full, how can that be a less risky investment than buying an apartment building? How is it less risky? Well, when we're looking for acquisition, we always try to buy it at the right numbers. It has to have a margin of safety there, right? So at 70% occupied, I would like to see it at a point where it can sustain the mortgage, right? It can, let's say another one or two tenants leave, let's say it drops down to 50% occupancy. At that 50% occupancy, I want to be at least break even, right? To the point where you're not losing money. So at 70%, you should be making something, right? So that's your margin of safety there, right? Buying at the right price. To the point where even if you lose some tenants, you can still make out okay, right? 
And now a lot of it comes from your analysis and evaluation of the property too. So you're looking at a property that's 70% occupied. So now if you have consistently all mom and pop tenants, that is a higher risk than if some of your tenants in that strip center were a national credit tenant or an anchor, if you will, right? If their established businesses are nationally recognized, they have less of a chance of defaulting. So the risk there is offset. Whereas with a mom and pop tenant, they could go bankrupt tomorrow. And now you're sitting at hopefully 50% occupied with them leaving, right? So you assess your risk that way. I mean, I do agree multifamily, everybody's always going to need a place to live. 100% agree, but it's not 100% risk-free. There are some risks with it, right? Higher turnover sometimes, government regulations, things like that. So with retail, you can also assess your risk with having a plan in place beforehand. So if you buy it at 70% occupied, you want to get the ball rolling pretty quickly, right? You want to make sure you get those places filled because Worst case scenario, if another 20% drops, you're at 50% occupancy, if you're already teetering with the timeline. So we try to fill things as quickly as we can. So you utilize a lot of free ways to find tenants, social media, Craigslist, bandit signs, cold calling, canvassing, right? So yeah, it comes from analyzing the property correctly, looking at it from a vantage point where you have some room to go before you actually get to the break-even point so that at the end of the day, you're not losing money. Hopefully that answers your question. It does. So if you're going to go buy a duplex, that duplex is going to sell for a similar price, whether there's nobody living in it. Say it's the same niceness, doesn't have a pig in it. If it's a duplex and it's sitting there and one side's rented, none of it's rented or both sides rented, it's going to sell for the same price, essentially. But if you have a strip center that has 10 units and seven of them are full, the price it sells for is based upon the money it's bringing in. So if if that's selling and it's 100% full, if it's 70% full, when you compare the end, so it's making 70% less money, it's going to sell at 70% compared to the full strip center. Correct. And so if you buy that, and if you're a good leaser, like you were saying, and you get out ahead, so even before you've closed, you find tenants and you got people ready to go. And once you're out in the world and working and people are like, hey, are you buying another one? I need a store. You could actually be picking this up at a lower price and see if you can rent it before you ever close. And if you find out that, oh, this isn't rentable, this is a bad idea, you don't go through with the sale. To me, that's like this magic. Like when I found that out, I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) You can do what? And when you take that and now it's 100% full, like you go sign up. Somebody was just lazy. They weren't renting it. And you go and you find new tenants for those three empty ones. And so you sign and you close. And the same day you sign leases with them and now it's full. It's now worth a fully rented now, you could have increased the value a million dollars. Yep. Turn around and sell it the next day. Maybe you don't want to, but to me, that seemed much less risky. And I'm sure there's some of that in multifamily if you're buying an apartment complex that's half full versus full, but it's not to the same extent. And to me, that's just the coolest thing with these value add plays where you can do things that take risk away 
and make money and it's all paperwork. You're just adding value on paper. That just was the coolest thing. When I talk to docs, I'm trying to explain this and I don't feel like I explain it well because everybody's seen the 1970s deserted strip mall and that's what they see. They're like, oh, that's really risky. I think it's totally different. So now the warehouse business, I, I have no experience in warehouse, but I live in Green Bay, Wisconsin. There's a lot of warehouses. It's an industrial <laughs> town. And I see a couple I drive to work every day and there's one warehouse I drive by every day and it's for sale. And I have no idea how to evaluate a warehouse. I mean, how to rent a warehouse. Tell me a little bit about warehouses and how that works. I personally love warehouses. So when you're looking at Amazons or the internet businesses, right? They all need space. So where are they going to store them? In these giant warehouses, right? Which is why you see a lot of more demand for warehouses and their prices tick up a little bit on the higher end, right? The reason why I love them is because they're pretty much the lowest maintenance out of anything, right? It's literally a box, probably a metal prefab box on top of concrete, right? Less HVAC issues you have to deal with. And now we get into like flex space where there's offices, different story, but the audience should know that there's obviously different classifications of warehouses. You have your light, medium, and heavy manufacturing. Obviously on the heavy manufacturing side, there's heavy machinery. So your maintenance is a little bit more dependent upon how your leases are. So a lot of times when you're looking at these warehouses, it's important to look at the ceiling heights because now you have to be cognizant of what type of businesses are going to be operating in these warehouses, right? Some of them have these giant machines that are, I don't know, 14 feet tall, 16 feet tall, something like that. So being cognizant of that, the electrical capacity in the unit is two of my most important questions that I ask right off the bat to make sure that I know who I can market to, what type of businesses, if you will, that can occupy that space. But once again, on the management side, you can have triple net leases in warehouses. You can have absolute net leases, or it could be double net, single net, or modified gross. Any of those leases are operable within any of the commercial spaces, obviously, aside from multifamily. But if you're able to land an absolute net lease in a warehouse, that's amazing. That's 100% passive income, right? So that's just like if you lease out to a McDonald's. So when I say absolute net lease, that means essentially the tenants pay for X dollars per month or per year, right? And they take care of literally everything. So it's almost like they bought it. It's almost like they're taking care of it, but your name's on the deed. <laughs> and they still pay so, you every month. <laughs> if the roof goes out, they take care of it. They take care of all their trash, et cetera. Now, when it comes to how do you value it, you have to know the market, right? And there's paid versions of databases that you can look out there. Pretty pricey in my opinion, but the cheapest way to do it, go on LoopNet, go on Crexy, type in your area, look for warehouse and see what's listed, right? This is not the 100% accurate way of doing it, but it'll give you a barometer of what these brokers think the market is doing, right? So if they list it at a 7% or an 8% cap rate, you could be like, okay, maybe it's worth somewhere between seven and a half to eight and a half, right? So there's a little bit of wiggle room there. It gives you an idea of what it's going for. Now, obviously, from that perspective, if it's tenanted, 
now you have numbers to work with. So you can figure out what their income is from the tenant's rent, what expenses there are based on the type of lease, single, double, triple net, or absolute net. And from that aspect, now you can reverse engineer it, do the math to figure out what the purchase price should be and whether or not you can buy it at that price to make your desired returns. Now, if it's vacant, that's a whole different story. So that comes with a little bit more digging. So if you don't have some of these databases and you're not able to see what property has sold for in the past, you have to do a little bit more manual labor. So calling some brokers, doing some shadow shopping, right? Saying like, hey man, can I get 15 minutes of your time? I just want to learn a little bit more about this area and this type of property. What do you think it would sell for? And a lot of times I like to compensate them for their time, get their address, send them a gift card or something like that. Or if you're pretty savvy in the construction space and you are able to find out what the build costs of something like this is for your retail consumer, if you will, then you kind of have a barometer now of where that purchase price is and where it falls if it's above or below your typical build price. And that'll give you kind of a, a good idea of where you should be in terms of your offer price or whatever. Awesome. When you start digging into these things you don't know about and learn a little bit and a little bit, and then they turn out that it's not a black box, it's not magic, something to spend a little time on and you can understand it. And it just opens up all kinds of new doors. Well, thank you so much, Tom. This has been awesome. Learned a lot about some different asset classes. Any best advice you could give to a doctor who's trying to do something beyond being a doctor or investing in commercial real estate? Oh, man. I think every doctor should passively invest in something. You're making a ton of money, right? Superiorly modest income. I think you should put that money to work. Let it do something for you so it buys you back a little bit of time. And obviously, you want to, once again, harping on the operators, learn who to trust and understand the asset class that you're investing, right? And if you don't understand it, reach out to Mike, reach out to myself, like reach out to somebody who's been in the space that can give you an hour of their time, two hours of their time, whatever, to actually educate you on the beast before you throw any money in, right? I guess my best advice is probably my favorite quote. It goes, I think it's a Tony Robbins quote. It is, the secret to wealth is simple. Find a way to do more for others than anyone else does. Become more valuable, do more, give more, serve more. Perfect. Thank you, Tom. Absolutely, Mike. It was a pleasure. This has been an episode of Surgeon Syndicate. If you got value from this episode, you know other surgeons are hungry to become job optional, and you can help them by sharing this content today. I'd also love to serve you better, so I wanted to offer you two things. Number one, I'll be able to give you the content in an even better way if you take a moment and leave an honest written review of the show explaining what you like and what you don't. And number two, if you are a surgeon and serious about this, you don't want to do this on your own because you don't want to make mistakes with your money. I'd be happy to help you. Schedule a call and we can make a plan. Looking forward to having you with me on the next episode.